0: She's
1: alive! Alive! Hello, and welcome to the Final Ghost podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co founder of the Final Ghost and your podcast host. Over the next few months, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie. And today, we're doing a deep dive into a personal favorite and absolutely, indisputably one of the most iconic horror movies ever made. I'm talking of course about Brian De Palma's 1976 Carrie. In this chilling adaptation of Stephen King's novel, Carrie White is a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother. After she is humiliated by her classmates at her senior prom, Carrie unleashes her telekinetic powers. I'm joined in this episode by film critic Kelly Weston to talk about the many themes in Carrie, its legacy, its connections to other female monsters, Stephen King adaptations and so, so much more. Be warned, we will be spoiling the film from pretty early on in the episode. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're worried about spoilers, maybe watch it first and then come back to this episode and also reconsider your life choices because you need to see Carrie. But if you don't mind spoilers for a film from the 1970s, please enjoy our discussion of Carrie. Welcome back, Kelly.
2: Thank you for having me back.
1: So, we've got a lot to talk about with this film. So, let's just dive straight in.
0: It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there. Even Carrie White. The girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie. And everyone makes fun of it. <laughs> the girl who lives in that creepy house <laughs> with her crazy mother. No, no. Really no. the no. Help the sinny woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate
2: hard enough, I can move things. <laughs>
0: But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date to the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <laughs> Carrie. New film by Brian De Palma, based on the chilling bestseller.
1: When did you first watch Carrie?
2: So, my... My arrival to Carrie was very belated. Actually, I was a huge fan of Stephen King adaptations um, from day. I think <laughs> um, you know, I grew up on films like Cujo. Um, Cujo is responsible for probably like sixty percent of my fear of dogs, and um, uh, <laughs> and uh, Dolores Claiborne, but. I had never really seen Carrie. And one of the reasons for that is like, we'll get into it probably as we discuss this film. I love horror, but I do tend to, or I did tend to draw the line when I was younger at like devil shit. Yeah, so I was not crazy about possessions or any sort of thing like that. And that was how I thought, you know, I, that's how I framed Carrie in my head, having never seen it. And then I ended up having to do actually... um, I think it was around the time that I was like interning with sight and sound or for the BFI. I don't know if you remember this, but that was like one of the first panels that we did together was the Stephen King panel. This was I remember this
1: year. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> of course yes. I remember. That's how we met.
2: <laughs> I thought we'd met at the BFI before at something else. we did. I remember our first conversation, but I didn't know if this was the first thing that we'd ever um, done together. The first event ended up watching Carrie for that event. That, was the first time I had seen it. I think I'd seen pretty much every Stephen King adaptation except that one. And it was, let me tell you to, to, (laughs) to watch that film as an adult. it's, It's absolutely wild because, you know, some of it's, its flourishes, its stylistic flourishes are very dated. <laughs> They're very seventies, and you know the gaze is very leering. But I don't, and I don't know why, because obviously I had seen Brian De Palma films, but I mm-hmm. I was very surprised by how, um, uh, for some reason, how overtly male the gaze was in this film.
1: Hmm. Yes, uh, that's definitely something we're going to talk about. So let's kind of place this within Brian De Palma's work Yeah. Um. were you a fan of his work before kind of where does Carrie sit within it you know you use the word Leary and you're so right mm-hmm. I just rewatched the film today <laughs> and I do yep. not I've seen it a whole bunch of times and I've screened it a whole bunch yeah. of times I, I do not remember when I first watched it as a teen kind of just how mm-hmm. lecherous the camera is from <laughs> the very first scene
2: I mean it's filthy. It's like <laughs> I, it's it is Carol Clover's essay, like come to life. Um mm. and you know, fascinating, she doesn't really talk about a care that much in in, you know, her her well, for the in the aptly named Her Body Himself, I think is what the essay is called. Um, you know, she talks about the ways in which horror sort of caters to a particular um audience, a, a male, a specifically male teenage audience. And she talks about, you know, all of the different, you know, gender boundaries that are sort of negotiated when you're when you're watching horror films where women are victims, but then you also root for women. And, you know, the thing about (laughs) Carrie is like, again, it's, it's very twofold, because you're obviously feeling very sympathetic for her, she is, you know, I guess, uh, to borrow a, a very trendy term, she's, a, she's you know, an anti-hero, an anti-heroine, but you're also really invited to, you know, to gaze upon her in this way that is very, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly sexualized, right? Like, it's very pornographic. Mm. I had, as, as far as Brian De Palma is concerned, like, I had seen... Bits of Scarface. I'm a Michelle Pfeiffer fan, so I've seen all of the Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer scenes of Scarface. Um, and I've seen Body Double. Um, I've seen Dress to Kill, and I've just I rewatched it for this. It's fascinating to like to to think about you know, how those two particular films also sit in, in his work because he does carry. And then I think Dressed to Kill comes out in like eight, 1980, 81 or something like that. And so they're like four or five years apart and it's still very, you know, it's, it's they're both deeply gender texts. They're both extremely, you know, in their specific and distinct ways, very misogynistic. Um, and at the same time they're also you know so sensationalized like they're really still very complex texts i guess um to to be more concise like they're still really there's like a lot to to mm. unpack <laughs> yeah that is uh that is my my relationship generally with de palma is is grudging entertainment <laughs> grudgingly entertained <laughs>
1: I must admit I, I grew up being a massive De Palma nerd. I loved Scarface. I loved Body Double. Mm. I loved Snake Eyes. Um, so I got oh, introduced because yeah. yeah, I loved I love kind of this um his very problematic brand of macho cinema and the fact that he was obsessed with Hitchcock and so was I but he was going to places that Hitchcock could not go into visually just because of the the time in which they were making movies and Carrie also I mean all of his films have Hitchcock knots Carrie in particular also does Carrie was also one of the first the second Stephen King book that I read uh, as a teenage Mm -hmm. girl and then I saw the adaptation and I remember really empathizing with Carrie and not really focusing so much on the style. This time around, though, kind of re-watching it for the purposes of this podcast, it was interesting. There's two scenes in the film. There's the beginning, which is like in the shower scene, which is very, very softcore porny basically. Yeah. Uh, it's a very lecherous camera. But then I was suddenly reminded, kind of when it turns horrific, it's the horror of this naked girl who's just had her period and is just assaulted by all these other girls that was the thing that I always remembered about the scene and not so much the um, the gaze of the camera which I guess is is weird to a degree but then there's another scene which I was purely when they're being when the other teenage girls are being punished and they have to do high knees and do um, workouts with their gym teacher and there's about three minutes worth of just a slow pan across all of their legs
2: yes like ass legs 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 but I mean <laughs> I was just yeah <laughs> those two scenes are so um the the two sequences that you point out are are, are fascinating right mm. because you know we're talking about the the ways that women are sort of configured as monstrous and the thing that is so horrifying or the thing that is supposedly um initiates Carrie into her powers is her you know her getting her first cycle basically yeah you're right like the camera it's like you know you're you're it's the camera's gliding through the locker room and it's like doing all of these close-ups on boobs and and you watch Carrie sort of like massaging her body as well so it Mm. almost seems as if she herself is, you know, you catch her in the middle or about to masturbate. It's a very, it's just a very odd scene. Yeah. And then it turns, you know, and I, I don't mean this about periods, but the way that the scene is framed is, is almost violent. Like she, she sees the blood and she reacts in horror. And then the other girls react in horror yes. and she, you know one of the things that I picked up on while I was watching it this time was like, she, she keeps touching things that are white. um She keeps touching Sue's white shirt and she touches the, the teacher. um I think Coach Collins, like she yeah. um touches her white gym shorts so that it just seems yeah. that much more vivid. And the thing that is, is, you know, I mean, I guess not to be a nerd about this, but I, you know, the, <laughs>
1: I mean, it's too late for that, Kelly.
2: I mean, true. <laughs> um, yeah, she uh, historically and mythologically, right? Like the period is linked to women's powers, or you know, to witchcraft, really. But like a kind of female and empowerment or or sorcery that men are not privy to or, or unable to access. Mm-hmm. Just an aside. I've never felt more disempowered than when I'm on my period. But I just think, like, <laughs> film of this period, like, night. This is 1976, and then more recently. And I think these things are just based on like actual rituals, probably. But do you remember the scene in Midsummer where she like mm-hmm. pour, she puts um, her menstrual blood in the in the drink or whatever to give yes. to him? So you know those things mm-hmm. are like. Yeah, they are like passed down. But um, one of the things I, I find really interesting about what you just said was, you know, women are are their bodies specifically are made monstrous, and they're also punished. Like the thing that you know, you sort of think of Mrs. Collins as the more, I guess, benevolent version of Carrie's mother, mm-hmm. white. But actually, they both are linked in the ways that they punish other girls, younger women. Um in a in a very corporal way so mrs collins does it where she sort of like makes the girls exercise until they are exhausted and carrie white's mother beats her and locks her in a cupboard so yeah in that way there's a weird through line um in this film about you know the body is this thing that women should be ashamed of
1: oh totally and it's interesting kind of Mrs. Collins because she actually slaps Carrie in that scene yeah. and I so zeroed in on the fact that when they're then in the principal's office she kind of has this moment where she says you know oh I also wanted to just hurt her like I yeah. got why the girls were punishing her and torturing her making fun of her like there was something about Carrie that made her kind of you know someone that people wanted to hurt which is such a weird and damaging aspect of this mm. but then there's also the way that Mrs. White, Carrie's mother, talks about bodies herself you know, she she calls her breasts dirty pillows and she's so not just embarrassed by her own body, just by the fact of having gotten pregnant and giving birth to Carrie she mm. also constantly reminds Carrie of the fact that their bodies are dirty and disgusting and she should cover herself up and be ashamed and just kind of you know jumping ahead a little bit but the sheer fact of Carrie going to prom and making herself a dress that fits her seems like such a massive rebellion against her mother
2: right I want to ask you because you you see you've read the book and one of the things that um I haven't I haven't read Carrie but I know that the book is very different in terms of her physicality. She is meant to be mm. like, she's meant to be basically fat and not attractive. And in the film, she's played by Sissy Spacek, who is, you know, Sissy Spacek is is a very thin woman. <laughs> it's, you know, Sissy Spacek, I, I guess in the film is meant to be like Hollywood ugly. Like she's never unattractive um but the thing about carrie in the book was like she you know she had all of these pimples and stuff like that i wonder how you Mm -hmm. see that change from book to screen and like what do you make of it
1: well you kind of mentioned it yourself it's the idea of no one in hollywood is allowed to be ugly on screen right no one in hollywood is allowed to be plain on screen so you're right in the book carrie is you know she's a plain girl she's just there's so many reasons that people can latch on onto and bully her in school which they do and kind of here because obviously this is the 70s hollywood and then in every subsequent adaptation of carrie really if we look at all of them you know the kimberly pierce one the short-lived uh tv series even Carrie to you know the rage they're all perfectly like Hollywood actress level, good-looking young women. Yeah, there's nothing kind of that would make them stand out necessarily. This is basic, I think, is really interesting because I think she's very. She goes to places, I think, with the way that she performs with her body mm. that makes her shift on screen. Like if you see her in Badlands, and if you see her in um in this film, she has a very different physicality about her. But she is essentially, you know. Very slim, white, blonde, blue-eyed yeah. Hollywood actress. There's nothing about her that's unconventional. Right. There is something about the way that she sort of contorts her body, mm-hmm. and I think even in the shower scene, you know, when she goes from sort of caressing herself and be looking almost like like it's a masturbation scene in a softcore in a softcore porn film, right? To being almost like a Gremlin-esque type figure that's hunching in on herself and bleeding and kind of touching everything around her and covering it in blood as well and she's so distraught by it. She kind of holds nothing back, which is I think one of the the things that she really brings to the film. Yeah. The fact that she's not worried about looking Hollywood pretty all the time on screen? Yeah. What do you think about her?
2: I love Sissy Spacek. Sissy, let me tell you. Sissy Spacek is one of my favorite white ladies and I hope that she doesn't mess up. <laughs> Because yeah, I just I I love love I love her. She's um, I first saw her as a kid in uh this film called The Cold Miner's mm-hmm. Daughter. It's a Loretta Lynn biopic. Yes, yes. It's a very it's a it's a Southern classic. <laughs> and um, yeah. I <laughs> she's in, but she's incredible. You're you're totally right. Like she's a really physical actress as well. And I think it's also important to you know this mm. film you know, in her filmography, because you're right, she's done, so she does Badlands, like, two or three years before Carrie, and mm-hmm. um, she gets a nomination, I think maybe her first, maybe she got a nomination for Badlands, I can't remember, but I think she gets her first Oscar nomination for Carrie, and then I, I'm i pretty sure that it's, like, right after this, right after Carrie, um, she wins for The Coal Miner's Daughter, so she immediately, like, establishes herself as a, not just like a a, a versatile actress, even though she has a very distinctive voice, but Mm -hmm. a a serious actress in in a horror film. I mean, I don't know, Brian De Palma films, as far as I know, now I'm I'm generalizing, I'm saying this, and maybe you will challenge me with facts, but his films are not generally Oscar bait. Are they?
1: No, I think you're totally right. And it's interesting that you bring it up because this is a conversation that we, we've been having for like the past, what, two, three years about horror films infiltrating the mainstream kind of art right. house uh, respectability, you know, getting nominations and awards uh, for screenplays, for performances. And, and the kind of people forget that Carrie also, the fact that she got nominated for Best Actress Hmm. is kind of astounding because this is on you know especially if we go back 40 odd years this is not a genre that is uh the beacon of respectability this is you know exploitation and uh, box office you know this will make money but it won't give you gravitas as a performer or necessarily as a director right but i think the palma one of the things I always loved about him is the fact that he is, he kind of, um, you know, it might be wrong and it might be just projecting this onto his career, but he always struck me as a guy who would make the films that he wanted to make or would scam his way into making the film that he actually wanted to make.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Because like the films that he'd made before, were sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, which I adore, and is one of the weirdest fucking films that has ever been made, and Obsession. Mm. Yeah, this is probably kind of his his biggest. Um, his biggest film, I think, at that at that point.
2: To be, to be clear, we don't want to use the Oscars as a barometer of any sort of value, but you know, they 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 are a, a body that has has presented themselves as as mm. you know prestige and and uh, or is conferring prestige rather. But Piper Laurie is also nominated. You know, this is a film that really like the performances in this film are really taken seriously. And and you know, on that note, I do wonder mm-hmm. how do you how do you feel about Piper Laurie's performance in retrospect because there are moments of it that are just quite frightening, but also really camp, obviously. Yeah.
1: I found it more frightening this time around. I think I didn't I always found her like as a frightening figure mm-hmm. because she is just the campiness. When I watched it uh, earlier on, always kind of went over my head, and she just seems very grotesque and scary. And the fact that she was wearing kind of that that white nightgown stuck in my head. And this time round, I found her her devotion to you know her religious mania mm-hmm. to be the scariest thing. And more than before, I found the way that she hated her femininity and she hated her body, and by extension, she hated her daughter's body, and was constantly kind of punishing both of them. Really, really scary. I mean, you know, it is it is a kind of a, a hammy, over the top performance, but I have a soft spot for those. Mm. I mean, I'm a really big fan of Joan Crawford. Like, I have a really <laughs> big soft spot, soft spot for them.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, the scene where Carrie comes home from prom, having unwittingly killed her classmates, it, you know, the scene where she's, she's, she's monologuing about her disgust for her husband and what he Mm sounds like. And, and then that little, you know, Transition where she says, um, but I liked it. Like I liked the way that he touched me. It's a really to me. I found like you know the first time I saw it, which that was so yeah, it must have been five or six years ago. Whenever we did that uh, panel, I found her like insanely creepy and frightening. And this time, I just found her so sad. I was really like you know here. This is a woman who you think for most of the film as well. So it's really it's a really I think nuanced portrayal because for most of the film, you think like, oh, she just, she doesn't enjoy sex. Like she can't, she doesn't, you know, understand it. Like she feels that her body compromises her moral devotion to God. Um, but actually it's, it's something much more sinister than that. It's like, she herself is sort of split, split herself between her, nature what's natural what feels good like she and I think what she hopes to sort of extend to carry or or at least pass down to carry her feelings about motherhood seem to be extremely um uh opposed (laughs) like she doesn't she she clearly like doesn't enjoy it her she finds her daughter to be this extremely treacherous almost frightening alien creature. Even before she finds out that Carrie uh, has telekinesis, before she decides that she's a witch and she needs to be vanquished, it's very clear that her relationship Mm. with her daughter is is extremely antagonistic and that there's no real nurturing there. But I think the thing Mm -hmm. that struck me about this character and also Laura's performance is that it's really... It becomes, yeah, really sinister. It's, It's just somebody who is filled with self-loathing and, and yeah, that's really somber.
1: Because of the way that we're taught to perceive mothers and the way that we're taught to expect mothers to behave and this kind of generalized idea that a woman is by default nurturing and motherly. Right. The image of seeing Carrie's mother be so filled with hate and self-loathing and also disgust for her daughter as well and just be the the radical opposite of what we're taught to expect a mother to be i think also it taps the film really taps into that um that sort of general societal expectation of what we think mother should look and behave like
2: right because the end, the conclusion of, of their relationship is, is very sexualized as well. Like this is a, a I mean, I guess I would argue like a lot if not most horror films are sort of premised on mm. this kind of preedipal um conflict uh especially mm. when it comes to slashers it's always like yes the the character had an extremely demented relationship with his mother and um mm. mother figures are extremely powerful in this genre and the thing yeah. that is extremely disturbing uh, about the end of Carrie is like you know and this has been over theorized is you know the stabbing of the mother she ends up being crucified um like the mm-hmm. um, the sort the little statue of Christ that uh Carrie has in her bedroom i think or maybe it's in their cupboard um but you mm-hmm. know she in it's it's very phallic like it's very sexualized she talks to her daughter about enjoying sex with her father and and hating herself for it essentially and then she stabs her daughter in the back mm-hmm and she comes down the stairs laughing mm. in a in a scene that is absolutely nightmarish <laughs> it's not and and i think like yeah there's something about that that is 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 really fascinating essentially all of the conflict in the film takes place between women men are not really a part of this you know violence which i think is really interesting
1: no men are total pawns and i wonder as well of this Emphasizing the the really intense toxic dynamic between Carrie and her mother is also another way of of Carrie being in conversation with Psycho, which is a, a yeah. film also all about mommy issues. Yes, we've spoken a lot about kind of the adults in the film. What do you make of the teenagers? Well,
2: let me give you some context to this. It was extremely Mm -hmm. fortunate, actually, that you asked me to talk about Carrie because I was already thinking about it a lot. Um, I was in the middle of writing a review of this upcoming film, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't know if you've seen, but if you haven't, it's amazing. I think it's right up your alley, but it's a film called Saint Maude.
1: Uh, Yes, I've seen it.
2: (laughs) Of course you have. Of course you have. I love it. I love this film. And so hopefully by the time um this comes out, my review will have have been published. But yeah, so I was already thinking about about Carrie and and about the body and and the well specifically the female body and horror. Um and the other thing that just sort of struck me this time around um was, you know, I mean we're talking about the body, but I think it's also really important to emphasize that these are like white women's bodies. And One of the things that's happening in the film is these white women are sort of creating categories of otherness within their community because it's a very Mm homogenous group of girls and they're all pretty well off and middle class. I mean... I think we're meant to get the impression that Carrie is lower middle class. Um, She's not quite poor. They live in like a very massive house, but maybe they inherited it. These distinctions between them that they're creating are very um, mob-like, like Like, the way that they turn on Carrie and, and throw tampons at her is extremely sort of reflective of, of a kind of mob violence. To me, it's sort of, it becomes a really interesting film about race. It's fascinating because a lot of times, I mean, I'm a black woman, so I quite often get asked to write about race. And that what that means is that I'm Mm -hmm. writing about black people or I'm writing about films about black people. But Carrie is also a film about race. It's a film about white people. (laughs) And it is, you know, one of these projects that ends up, and I don't think that this is something that Brian De Palma like actually set out to do, but it ends up being very emblematic of of yeah a particular milieu i i just don't think that he approached this project thinking that he was trying to say anything especially the way that horror films nowadays get sort of tapped as being like i'm saying this in quotations but elevated horror is having some sort of like social realism mm-hmm. i really think that this is a movie that is essentially about oh the ways in which white people create others. Like, she's other, right? Like, she she has a really yeah. distinct southern accent. I find that aspect of the film pretty fascinating.
1: That's so interesting. I never thought about it like that, but you're right. I mean, the film is about otherness. It's just otherness in the context of high school politics, right. which usually manifests itself as bullying. And... It's how they define or pick Carrie as the other. Because on the surface, and like we were talking about before, there's nothing about her that makes her different from the rest of the skinny, pretty white girls that exactly. are in her school. There's literally nothing that would set her apart. She lives next door to some of them. They look almost exactly alike. Mm-hmm. and But there is that something element about her that makes her different. And makes them latch onto her. And even that scene that I was mentioning before with Coach Collins. Where she is sort of talking about the fact that Carrie sort of attracts. What's the word I'm looking for? Violence. Or she attracts violence. Yeah. What do you think that says though about Carrie being positioned as the monster of the film? You know, you talk about her kind of being you know she's got telekinesis. that's the basics of it Mm -hmm. but it's all wrapped up in religious iconography there's always the element of you know witchery and and then she kind of becomes unhinged in the in the prom scene yeah she's often mentioned kind of in in conversations or articles about the female monstrous uh so what do you think kind of all of this othering of Carrie but also everything we've spoken about so far kind of builds her up into being a monster
2: well i mean the thing about creating otherness or or uh, racism or any sort of prejudice is that it sort of threatens a symbolic order right like it makes your Mm -hmm. privileges precarious and tenuous and so you have to sort of reify those boundaries and I think the thing about Carrie and this is something I also think that De Palma probably maybe I just don't want to give him a lot of credit that's me being grudging again Um, (laughs) you know he ends up pointing out that actually Carrie brings out or what she symbolizes is a kind of monstrosity in all of them you know, they all menstruate, right? They're all, Mm. you know, these are all young women, uh, who of, I I don't, I hate to, to, you know, say it like this, but it's because I'm going to make this point, but you know, they're, they are of procreating age or whatever, you know, it's like their possibility within them and, and that sexual difference is sort of, what a lot of horror films have been sort of predicated on. And I think with Carrie, she she exposes that almost in in well in a really literal way, right? Like those other girls obviously are are menstruating, but they throw their tampons at Carrie because Carrie's never She's she doesn't know what a period is. Um, her mother's never explained this to her. So she sort of visualizes that. Right. Like this thing that is kept hidden mm-hmm. in, for, for most girls. Most girls don't, you know, I mean, obviously girls talk about their periods, but, you know, it, I don't know if I'm, I'm being as, as I want to be about this, but these are things that like are kept subterranean. So girls are very much encouraged Mm -hmm. not to talk about their periods because, you know, that's something that, you know, men don't want to hear about or whatever. It's something that we have to keep to ourselves Mm -hmm. or internalize. And so Carrie externalizes that, you know, it's also like, it's, it's crazy how Chris in particular, because I think there's a way that she and Carrie double each other where Carrie is extremely shy and I guess chaste, or yeah she Chris is is over sexualized Mm -hmm. and um explicitly Mm. feminine and I think there's an interesting connection between the way that you see Carrie learning about the way to perform as a woman that Chris is almost always doing. Um Chris we should say also was played by Nancy Allen who is Brian De Palma's wife at this time. Yeah, Yeah, she, you know, it's it's there's a, a a scene where Chris is like putting on makeup and essentially what she's getting ready. The only thing she's getting ready to do is like, you know, give John Travolta a, a blow job so that she can tell him that you know, she wants him to participate in the scheme that she's dreamed up about getting back at Carrie. And then Coach Collins showing Carrie that she can be pretty and telling her like, oh, this is how you fit in. This is how you have to sort of navigate this milieu is by, you know, essentially being a woman in this film is, it's a performance. I think that Carrie has a real, the way that she is sort of literalized as other because she has these magical powers really sort of indicates that A lot of what is fearsome about women or or meant to be fearsome about women is sort of like it's all inextricably bound up in their bodies and and you know because I mean as we were saying before like the thing that sort of precipitates all of this is that she gets her first menstrual cycle so it's not even Mm -hmm. like telekinesis becomes this really like fantastic embodiment of this thing that all women really are expected to have not in the sense that like all women are expected to have magical powers, but that, you know, like what happens when a woman is, is able to procreate, this is the thing that is just on a psychological level for horror, like really fertile ground. No, no pun intended.
1: <laughs> uh no. Oh, it was totally intended. Come on, um, no, but you're you're so right. And there's there's kind of an interesting semi sub genre, or kind of a, a quite a few horror films that sort of use the moment of a a girl or a young woman getting her period, kind of equating the, the menstrual cycle with sort of a curse, and they call it the yeah. curse in this film as well. And here it it literally manifests as magical or supernatural abilities in Carrie, but they're never kind of positioned as a power. They're positioned as a curse. You know, it's something that will, and eventually destroys her. Yeah. Um, but with, picking up on your point about Chris though, I thought it was so fascinating the way you were talking about it because Carrie is the monster of the film, but Chris is the villain. You know, she's yeah. the one that actually puts a lot of the terrible shit that's put up on Carrie and that leads her to breaking point in motion. And you're right, she's her complete opposite in kind of every single trait. You know, she performs this version of hyperfemininity. She is extremely aggressive. Uh, she also kind of challenges, she has the kind of the opposite relationship with Coach Collins. Also gets slapped by her, by the way, but in a completely different way contact mm. and then you know she uses sex as a tool to get John Tavolta to partake in her scheme and there's such glee in her kind of humiliating and hurting Carrie she's such a nasty character and not yeah. a single other person in that whole high school in that whole environment can stop her or even see what's happening with her so in a way they're kind of going through completely parallel journeys
2: Mm. I, John Travolta I can't remember what his character's name is where he's like chopping like he's hitting the pigs with an axe and she's like encouraging him yeah. and there's like this blood thirst in her eyes
1: yeah 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 and she like asks to be the one to pull the rope or no he like offers it to her and she responds with something like really mean spirited like oh no I, w- I was always gonna be the one to pull the rope to let yeah. the pig's blood fall on Carrie yeah. Yeah, she's she's a vicious little character and I don't think she gets as much attention uh because the film is filled with you know with with Carrie and with Carrie's mother and they're much more flamboyant but Chris is really nasty.
2: Yeah, she's she's horrible. She's a real <laughs> she's sort of um almost like this patriarchal or misogynistic um nightmare of a woman come to life right because she is as you say you're I mean you're absolutely right like she's hyper feminized she's she is you know sexually confident and the thing is that even though she embodies all of these really awful characteristics she gets hit so many times. Like John Travolta hits her. Coach Collins hits her. Coach Collins absolutely needs to be fired. I, I think that Coach Collins is also a low-key. <laughs> yeah. Hitting these children, that's not, <laughs> that's not okay. I don't it's know. It's the
1: what 70s. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. I was just like Coach Collins definitely believes in corporal punishment, and she's really not that far off from. Her. <laughs> but yeah, Chris is it's 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 amazing, right? Because there is also something really phallic about her her assault on Carrie, because there is that sort of double entendre when she's talking to John Travolta about pulling the rope, right? And they've we've already seen that their strategy or the way that she gets him to do the things that she wants to do is through sex. Um, So there's a kind of sexual undertone Mm -hmm. to that exchange that they have. And then, you know, it's the inverse of the first scene or the first sequence where Carrie is bleeding, you know, they, the blood is poured onto her. Um, So yeah, there's, this film is like constantly negotiating all of these, different sexual boundaries I guess I should say like sexual transgressions that end up being really fascinating um especially when you think of the fact that I mean this is film you know we set this already but you know Carrie does get a really bad rep as being a very misogynist film (laughs) so this is the thing like these texts are are really complex and it's impossible to dismiss this film because it is so rich in that way.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's why I also mentioned that De Palma is a problematic fave of mine. Yeah. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, a bit more about the the prom massacre scene because that's arguably one of the most iconic scenes of the film and it's so interestingly filmed. And I wanted to get a, a dig into a little bit of that because there's a lot of, stylistic choices there that are very showy. And the Palma is very showy as a filmmaker. You know, he likes the artifice of film. He loves the split screen. He loves the slow motion. They spend a lot of time building up to the prom. They're getting ready. Everyone, including supporting tertiary characters you don't even know the names of, kind of going out, getting their tuxes, getting ready, making their dress buying lipstick it's all very (laughs) it's all very sweet but then when they get to the actual prom and it's this kind of Carrie and Tommy getting comfortable and Carrie kind of starting to ease into high school life which is so alien to her and when we actually see the machinations you know the pig's blood thing happening when they start going up onto the stage it's all slowed down and then when it happens it also takes such a long time and almost as if we're being asked to revel in the humiliation of Carrie so what do you think of um, of that particular scene and how it's filmed?
2: Um, I think you're absolutely right like it's really prolonged right you have to you have the split screen You have, you're sort of dwelling in this moment of of Carrie's degradation. Um, You have this moment where you are seeing what people in the crowd are really feeling, which is sort of stunned and shocked and confused. And then you have another moment where you're sort of in her head and what you see what she sees, which is people laughing at her, Um, her mother's warning um, has come true basically yeah. um, and then you see the di- these the way that people die like you see Miss Collins die you see the teacher who had picked on her earlier in class the way that he dies you see the kids try to get Tommy to safety it's a different scene it plays really differently in, in this particular climate because I think you know it is um, it, it really resembles a lot of films now about school shootings and yeah yeah and and you you know this is a period of time like this is you know it's 1976 um I hate this idea of just like oh yeah it was like it was an innocent time like I mean obviously horrible things are happening at this time too there are a lot of you know for true crime buffs there are a lot of serial killers out there around this time um but I think one of the things that is truly well I think that I found like really enduring about this scene is that yeah you are really encouraged or invited to sort of sit in this massacre in a way that almost feels mm. you know I mean it's 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 hard so you have to sort of you're you're watching all of these people that you have gotten to know in some way so they've become real people they've become fleshed out dimensional figures you're watching them die and you're watching them die in a, in a really horrible way at the same time you're also sort of you know it becomes really rich because you're you are sympathetic to Carrie and you know that you know Miss Collins technically is is innocent like she wasn't laughing um but Carrie mm-hmm. is unable to control her powers it's a chilling scene even to this day. I mean, we were talking about how sometimes the, the Brian De Palma's, um, filming techniques are extremely garish, or maybe the, a better word is like they're, you know, as you were saying, they're very showy. Um, but actually this doesn't, this doesn't feel dated at all. It feels, as you say, like really deliberate, really meticulous. um, And, yeah, it's still, like, it's still a really frightening scene. Like, I mean, just watching it last night is still, it's horrifying. Um, And I remember thinking also this time around that it actually wasn't as long as I thought it was the first time I saw it. Like, the first time I saw it, I thought it went on forever. But this time, it's actually, like, it's not, you know, Carrie... He kills the people in the gym. Um, then she kills Nancy Allen's cat. What's her name? Chris and uh, John Travolta's character as she's walking home. And then she's home. You know, it doesn't actually take that long. It just feels like that because of, you know, the violence that's happening in that scene. Um, and you see, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's, it's easy to see why it became such an iconic sequence.
1: I completely agree with you. When I was rewatching it just today, I I remembered the scene really well in my head, but it almost it definitely felt shorter than I remember it. Yeah. And I think part of that has to do with the way that that scene in particular has become so iconic and has been used so much even to, you know, re-release, re-promote, reposition or just um pay tribute to the film. Yeah. It's it's always that prom scene. It's the figure of Carrie completely disassociated from herself. And in a completely unhinged state. And covered in blood. And that kind of makes it feel like that is the whole purpose. And almost the climax of the movie. When it actually isn't. The climax of the film is Carrie's confrontation with her mother. And the destruction of their house. Which I also had kind of for some reason misplaced in my head. As something that came before the prom scene. So I'd forgotten that there was a double ending. Mm. The scene Feels much longer than it actually is because it is so horrific, and I think partly because of the split screen as well. Yeah, because we're seeing a lot of things happening at the same time, and it's interesting to think about it now because we're so used to second uh, to second screening, to double screening things, to be watching something and having one or two or three additional screens mm-hmm. open up in front of us and us interacting with them in some way. And But it's still, even thinking about this kind of in the 70s, or trying to think about how it could have been perceived at that time by those audiences. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of information that's being given to us very quickly. And all of that information, all of that imagery is amazingly violent, you know, it's people being killed. But we're also seeing the killer's point of view at the same time as we're seeing the murder's. It's still really super effective, I think. Yeah.
2: It's completely effective. And then, you know, it you're right, you think that you're at the climax of the film and then the action is about to happen again. It's interesting because she goes she goes home and she washes and she puts on a nice nightgown and and she wants to be held by her mother after this horrific act. And I mean, it's mm-hmm. is is just like overpowering about that scene is like, she's like essentially crying to her mother to hold her. And also there's like all these candles in the house. Um, and it looks very much like a scene of sacrifice. I mean, I guess I'm just thinking about like the last film that we
1: yes. did. <laughs>
2: where it was very much like, <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> Where there were loads of candles and somebody was being mm-hmm. sacrificed. And yeah, you.
1: Listen, I did not expect. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect a through line to be drawn between Carrie and the skeleton key. But <laughs> only you could do that, <laughs> I thank you.
2: Yeah, it, <laughs> it does, but it looks like. I I guess to be like, I was thinking about that because of you know, the way that yeah. her mother. Right. So, Deep in religion and um, mm. she clearly feels like yeah she has to this is the only way like she has to kill her daughter there because of the, the religious iconography just really um, beckons all these different all these different stories from the Bible where it is you know because I think of the, the way that blood is so positioned in this film where she's like drenched in it and they're killing mm. pigs and um, so yeah, that scene really stuck out to me that you know she has done she's committed this like really awful thing. who knows how aware she is of what she has just done that's not made clear in the film
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and then she comes home and she essentially dies with her mother in her arms in a really like you know womb like yeah. well maybe her her mom is actually in like a womb like position where she's sort of like... Curled up in Carrie's chest.
1: Well, it, it's very reminiscent. It's also religious iconography. It's it's literally the pose of uh, La Pietà, yeah. which is kind of that that image of um the corpse of Christ uh, in the lap of of his mother. Mm-hmm. So it's the reversal. Instead of the child of the dead child um being held by his parent, it's the the child holding her dead parent. Yes, yeah. I wanted to ask you kind of about the final scene. Mm. I think it's really interesting that the film doesn't even end there, which is quite a, you know, quite a Hollywood climax, you know, big massacre, house comes down, the monster dies, the crazy mother dies, we're all good. Mm. But then there's another scene and it's sort of the aftermath. And I found that that scene really drills down the theme of trauma, Mm that lives throughout the film. What do you make of that scene and how the film explores trauma throughout?
2: I mean, this is a, like, Sue is, uh, poor Sue. <laughs> she's, I, I mean, actually, I mean, if she's, she's played by Amy Irving. Actually goes, she goes on to star in my favorite Brian De Palma film, which is The Fury. Um uh, And I think The Fury is a little after this. It might be Amy Irving, interestingly enough, is playing somebody who has telekinesis.
1: It's directly after Carrie. Yes.
2: Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that really makes sense to me about this film is, you know, that sort of like adolescent feeling of, of feeling like your body is out of your control. Um, and, for the way that sue sort of really grounds the film in that for me is like you know carrie becomes this she becomes almost mythical right she becomes really folkloric i mean her mom's on the phone she's talking about like how all of these news reporters have talked or have like descended on the town and then left or Mm -hmm. whatever and for sue it's just a nightmare like she's maybe you know never ever going to and it's that that scene as well is like truly horrifying i still jumped (laughs) last night and it's like a real classic jump scare but it right like she yeah that trauma is never going to let her go like it's just inextricable as part of her now she she comes to the gym to sort of see her you know her good act visualized and then she ends up witnessing a massacre she ends up witnessing the death of all of her friends and her boyfriend and I think that it's, it's a perfect ending. I'm I'm almost glad because you're right. Like the typical Hollywood ending would be to end it with Carrie and her mother sort of buried. And it's as, as if they never existed again. Right. Like you can sort of, you, mm-hmm. you can see that as a very neat, clean ending and this horrible thing happened to this town. But actually what Sue does is, is really, you know, reifies the fact that this is a this those sort of things don't ever leave you. Those things are that trauma is it becomes very much a part of your life and your psyche and um they're not gonna be able to move on without having that part of their history. Um and Mm. yeah, I I think it's actually it's a perfect ending. Um and Amy Irving's great in this. She doesn't have a lot to do except sort of like smirk but I think she's, <laughs> I think she's very cool in this. I love her hair, and the smell. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that that's it. It's a, it's a really brilliant ending because it really sort of connects those themes of 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 trauma and and girlhood and and um. Yeah, really cements this theme, this really complicated or or maybe even contra- this really contradictory theme that you know to be in a woman's body is, is traumatic and, 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 and inescapable. Um, But you're also, yeah, you're also invited to sympathize with them. So.
1: And also powerful.
2: Mm, Yeah. Yeah.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I love the ending.
2: I guess I was wondering like of the Stephen King uh, monstrous woman, because there are actually, there are a lot of monstrous women in Stephen King's film. Um, or his adaptations, rather. Mm-hmm. Like, would this, is this high up there? What are your favorites?
1: Oh my god, that is such yeah. a good question. <laughs> can I ask you that? <laughs> You're the guest, can I ask you that?
2: Yeah, my, um, my favorite is Dolores Claiborne.
1: Oh, come on, Dolores is not a villain.
2: She's not a villain, but I do think that that's another film that is doing similar things. Right. But I think in a, in a, in a much more, yeah. um, if we're going to call these things, I mean, like it's, it's much more feminist, right. It's much more dimensional because the line in that film yeah. is like, sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to. And it's about these murderous women. Yeah, so women it's a mantra. Who end up, ha- but they have <laughs> to do these murderous acts in order to survive. Like, that's a I, I yeah. love Doris Claiborne is is first of all, if you haven't seen it, it's an incredible film. Maybe I would argue the best Stephen King adaptation.
1: Oh Do you, <laughs> I stand by it with yours. I mean we both know we both love Dolores Claiborne. Yes. I love it. Deeply underrated film. Everybody should check it out.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I wouldn't say it's the best Stephen King adaptation.
2: What's the best?
1: Oh, that's a whole nother episode. That's a whole yes. nother two hours of us arguing about Stephen King adaptations. But going back to the murderous or villainous women in the films based on Stephen King books, one of my favourites, if not my favourite, has to be Misery.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Which is also, um, which is, you know, Kathy Bates, who's also the protagonist of Dolores Claiborne. And... She's an amazing actress. I love Kathy Bates and Misery. I've also read the book and I've seen the film so many times. It's also so extremely relevant mm-hmm. right now, I think, and also just taps into the idea of toxic fandom and the relationship between artists and an audience. Mm-hmm that I'm really intrigued by and also it's um, Annie Wilkes is is so interesting as a villain because she is unhinged, she's not supernatural but she (laughs) lives in a world where she has created rules but her rules seem to bend morally in order to allow her to perform acts of violence and murder and actually, the more you learn about her, the more horrific she becomes. So it's both a book and a film that really benefits from rereading and rewatching, because once you know her entire story or more about her, she becomes even more horrifying. And I, and I love that about her, as Carrie is someone who struggles to understand or comprehend herself and then loses it and you know is consumed by that moment. Whether it's Annie knows herself, Kerbal, and I find them really chilling.
2: <laughs> yeah, Carrie, there's a lot of... the A lot of horror is acted upon Carrie before she actually has this outburst. Yeah. And so it. she's just such a... She, she emerges as a much more tragic figure um, than anything else.
1: Totally. Yeah, I agree. Just to wrap up the conversation, mm-hmm. what do you think is the legacy of Carrie on, on horror today?
2: That's a very good question. Um, Obviously the, the the iconography of Carrie has, has survived and so many filmmakers have referenced it since. Um, It's fascinating that, you know, Mm Brian De Palma, because this this is what you were saying earlier. He's so influenced by Hitchcock and he loves a good shower scene. And yeah, in the same way, I I think Carrie has become a real touchstone for a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, it's been remade. I think it's interesting as well that you mentioned the Carrie sequels, but you did not mention the Carrie remake with Chloe Moretz that was directed by... Oh, no, I didn't. Did you? Okay, I missed it though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the Kimberly Pierce. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, which is, it's, you know, it's a shame because, you yeah, it's a film that is directed by a woman. Kimberly Pierce did Boys Don't Cry, didn't she? Am I making that up?
1: No, 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 you're absolutely right. Yeah. She did.
2: And so, yeah, you'd think that that would, like, add some level of richness to it, but it it just doesn't. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that horror has always been a really it's it's to me a a woman's film it's, a, it's i i know like obviously it has all of this the fabric of the genre is very misogynistic it's it's very racialized and um mm-hmm. it's a really complicated genre but it is ultimately you know a, a a form that has been really animated by the fear of of women and also ends up saying really complex and, and fascinating things about the experience of women, even, well, I should say, despite a lot of filmmakers. And yeah, as I was saying earlier, I think this film that is getting ready to come out, St. Maude, takes a lot of cues from this film um, in the way that it mm. about how women absorb um, their own genderedness, you know? Um, and, you know, I want to be like, Careful about this, you know, women who I identify as women, and and how they are mm-hmm. essentially, in in this is something that happens. And say, Maude, I don't want to be very careful. Of, I don't spoil it, but you know, the ways in which women punish themselves and and punish their bodies. And that becomes a really fascinating through line in this new film that I think um, is absolutely uh, an influence of a film like Carrie. And yeah, I think it just is, it, it sort of really defined or begins to sort of yeah define Brian De Palma's career I mean obviously as you're saying like he did Scarface and he would do later Obsession he does this film Passion I mean his films recently his latest films aren't that great Um, but yeah Carrie is still the film Mm -hmm. that is talked about with a lot of reverence even though I think it's a really complicated text and I think people acknowledge that
1: I think you're absolutely correct and um, will you come back and talk about St. Maud with me yes of course (laughs) Kelly, thank you so much for your time and for your always super intelligent insight. Thank you. Where can people find more about your work?
2: Um, I suppose you can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Kelly, which is spelled K-E-L-L-I, Weston. So you can find my work there. You can find me on Movie Notebook. I've written for Film Comment. Um, And I'm just around, just doing this and that, bits and bobs. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
1: And that's it for this episode of the final ghost podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on the final ghost. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at the final ghost UK. You can also follow Kelly on Twitter at Kelly underscore Weston. That's Kelly with an I. And I tweet a lot of cat pictures and memes on Anna B. demented.